Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Capital, the podcast. I'm your host, Ross O'Brien, founder of Bonaventure Equity, venture capital firm, investor, entrepreneur, and author of Cannabis Capital, the book. Um, so be sure to get your copy wherever good books are sold or any books are sold. Love doing these podcasts. It's a great way for us to share with all of you the key thought leaders and experts, uh, founders that we're working with in the space as we try to really unpackage and go beyond the, the green rush, go beyond the headlines and really dig into what's happening in the cannabis economy and more broadly life sciences and our strategy. I'm really excited to have uh, a conversation today with Mike McCormick. Mike is a partner with us uh, at our firm, at our fund. Um, he's worked with several of our portfolio companies and is really a fantastic expert in approach to the world of intellectual property and also happens to have the unique distinction of being a chemist by, by, by training. So excited to welcome here Mike McCormick today. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Ross. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate, good to be here. Appreciate your time as always. I'm sure people are going to have their minds blown just like all the conversations that we have. Uh, the best place to start, let's go through a little bit of your background. Talk about how you got into intellectual property more more broadly and your scientific background and, and sort of the pathways into uh, this emerging space. Sure thing. So as you mentioned, I'm a chemist by training. Um, I uh, pursued, I got an undergraduate degree in chemistry and one in biochemistry from the University of Michigan. Went straight from there to MIT, where I got a PhD in chemistry and focused on particularly crystallography and studying enzyme function and structure. After that, I moved on to uh, the Scripps Research Institute here in San Diego, where I am now. And that's when I started to get into the, the world of cannabis research in particular. Because at Scripps, in Ray Stevens' lab, I was uh, pursuing X-ray crystal structures of the cannabinoid receptors, specifically CB1 was the focus, but CB2 as well. Um, and so I started a lot of the early work that ultimately led to that uh, structural characterization while I was working there. But that having already been interested in cannabis and psychedelics my entire adult life, I found it like a nice connection to be actually working on that as a chemist. And so that was very exciting, especially because back then this was 2012 or so, there was not a lot of knowledge around, you know, or research being done in cannabis at all compared to now. Here we are 10 years later and there's a lot more stuff happening. So that was sort of my introduction to the world of cannabis science research. But after my postdoc and being tired of being a poor academic, I decided that I, I needed a better paying job. So I moved back to Boston and started working as a technical advisor or a technology specialist is what some of the firms call, call the, the position at some big corporate law firms that do patent for, for pharmaceutical companies and small time inventors and everything in between. And so, so I spent four years doing that training in the world of patent prosecution and IP protection, particularly as it pertained to chemical inventions, specifically drug molecules and how they're used. And so got excellent training, particularly at a law firm called Choate in Boston, which is a, a powerhouse prosecution firm. Um, so I got excellent training there and a lot of exposure to how uh, for Big Pharma in particular protects their chemical inventions. So that, uh, you know, it's, it's my background in, in science and IP and after spending time in IP uh, and doing that kind of uh, legwork, I, I decided that I liked the client-facing portion of it more and, uh, and the, the, the strategy and science rather than the actual writing of patent applications and, and arguing with patent offices. And so I moved into cannabis consulting in the, in the cannabis industry and now psychedelics as well. 
Um, and so for the past six years, I've been doing that um, and applying both my knowledge of chemistry and biochemistry with uh, my experience and knowledge in IP to help uh, particularly startup cannabis and psychedelic companies uh, transfer their technology into something that's more commercializable and specifically protect uh, things uh, with, with um, patents and, and other forms of IP protection. So right place, right time, super interesting. Talk to us a little bit about uh, what intrigued you from a technology standpoint and technology in this context, meaning new scientific discoveries, new innovations like, you know, cannabis and psychedelics certainly feels to us like we're just scratching the surface to try to uncover what's there. So it seems like a new, uh, a new technology. And what does that mean for the, the intellectual property landscape? Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting situation and it applies to both cannabis and psychedelics because here we have compounds that are anecdotally known for, for generations, even thousands of years to, to have medicinal benefits. But at the same time, we have, you know, things like the U S government telling us that they have absolutely no medicinal value. Um, and there's been historically tons of red tape surrounding even doing research on cannabis or psychedelics. And so despite the fact that so many out there know of the benefits um, and have some idea of what kind of benefits can be attained from the use of psychedelics or cannabinoids, um, it's, it's only recently with the, the, the wave of legalization that's opened the doors for, for more research. And for me in particular, as a, as a, a chemist and somebody with classical training and, and experience in, in biotech and the legal world, the idea of working in a space that's completely illegal is, is, is not uh, exactly appealing to me. Um, but what really did it for me uh, it was the when I learned that that Johns Hopkins it was, this was years back had had started this research program surrounding psychedelics. I mean, here we have the best or one of the best medical schools in the world now opening their doors to psychedelics and and running incredible uh, studies. I mean, the, the thing that really shocked me, which I mean, I guess that, that the the study was done, not the results of the study, but the fact that Johns Hopkins did the study. Um, testing SSRIs, typical antidepressant drugs, uh, against psilocybin as a, a way of finding out new treatments for, for things like depression. And so, so they had some groundbreaking results showing things that people who had taken antidepressant, typical SSRIs every single day and had certain levels of benefits found that they could achieve all of that and more from like once every six months to once every six week type doses of psilocybin. So that sort of opening up of the scientific world and, and getting it out in the open in that way was such a strong institution what told me that, all right, I can do this. Like we can bring this stuff off the streets, if you will, and into the pharmacy so that people can access these compounds. This is super interesting, Mike. And one of the questions I get a lot, or at least people seem to be talking about is, can you patent something that's illegal? And when we're looking at Schedule 1 substances and you bring up exactly, you know, the point where Schedule 1 by definition says there's no medical necessity, but now we're starting to see FDA approvals in both cannabis and psychedelics. We haven't got anything in psychedelics yet, but it's certainly, um, I think, right around the corner. Walk us through the purpose of protecting your IP with a patent. What, what constitutes novel technology? What does the patent office do when they look at new things? And in particular with cannabis, how, how does the federal illegality piece play into this? Sure. So, I mean, one of the things is the basics around a patent. People know that they can have value, I think, most people. But 
what a lot of people don't realize, I think, is that is that what a patent gives you is the right to exclude others from doing what's described in your patent. The exchange is this. The inventors tell the world, publicly disclose all the details of their invention and how to make and use it. And in exchange, they, those inventors or, or uh, the companies to which the, their rights are assigned get a approximately 17-year monopoly on that technology and those specific uses as it's described in the patent. And so, so that can, of course, be incredibly valuable. And you, know, you can think of a long list of pharmaceutical compounds from everything, you know, I, I always think along the lines of drugs, but if you think about things such as simple as like a windshield wiper on, on a car, incredibly valuable patent. Um, and so, so, so that's having a patent doesn't give you the monopoly. Having a patent gives you the legal ability to sue others who try to do your thing or are doing your thing. And so if you're in a space where other people are going to be competing and, and trying to do the same thing as you, then it's best to have that patent and get it as early as possible. And so that you can either license that technology to others that want to use it, or you can exclude them from, from doing that kind of stuff. And so, so it's important to note that that's, that's the, the, the reason for getting a patent is to share this technology with the world in exchange for a significant term of a monopoly on it. Just so, yeah, this is an interesting point. It's interesting that you brought up the windshield wipers because there's a famous story about the the inventor that the car companies just infringed on his IP for years and years, and it you know destroyed him to fight, and he ended up winning in the end. But you know, there's a there's a saying in the the venture world, right, especially at an early stage. In some respect, the patents value is largely predicated on your ability to defend it, right? Absolutely. So when you think about, you know, litigating for, you know, some position and having some monopoly or exclusivity around it, this sounds like this is not a game for every company to play. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it can be, and in a way it should be. And that's the, you know, the basics of patent law, even as they stand today in America, were written into the Constitution by our, the founding fathers. <laughs> and the idea was that we need to promote innovation. And the way to do that is, is to, to give those innovators a big chunk of the, the, the glory and the cash that comes from those innovations. And so, you know, it's, it's in, this, in that same spirit, the idea is that anybody who invents something should be able to, to protect that invention. And it shouldn't matter how much money you have. And that's why, for example, the, the patent office tiers the fees for things. If I'm going to go as a solo inventor, I can apply for a patent. I don't, I don't need an attorney or a patent agent. If I am the inventor, I'm one of the few people that can go apply for a patent. If I'm not the inventor, then I, I have to have uh, somebody else uh, do that uh, actual process. And so that's where patent attorneys and patent agents come in. Um, but, uh, and, and so, so that's the thing, Ross, the, the, the spirit of patent law is that every, everyone who invents something should be able to protect that invention. And, and if you are a solo inventor or a smaller organization, the patent office will be a little nicer to you in the, the prosecution process. Most often kind of help people along. Um, and, uh, you know, whereas, whereas the flip side is if you're a huge organization, then you can throw tons of applications at the patent office and have lots of arguments and, you know, sort of fight your way, which of course costs a lot because it's in, in legal fees. So, so the reality of it is that yes, if you have more money, you're you're more likely to be able to get a patent because you can bring force the bring forth the force of of uh, lots of institutional knowledge from law firms and and the best lawyers to make the best arguments because because that's what it is when when you apply for a patent. You're, you're, you're asking the, the, the patent office for this exclusivity, and their job is to tell you that you're not going to get it. Their job is to reject 
if, if, particularly in the US, uh, USPTO examiners are paid based on the number of rejections that they, that they give. So they, they make more money if they give fewer patents. And so, so their job is to find out, you know, why your, your invention is either not novel. Uh, not uh, inventive, enabled, or obvious. And so that's what their job is to do. And so they go out and find references, things that are already out there in the public that they say anticipate your invention, and therefore it's not new and you don't deserve a patent. And so that's kind of how the process goes. But since you asked about legality, I want to touch on that real quick. Yeah, that's where I wanted to go, Mike. Despite the fact that that, uh, the USPTO is a, a federal organization, they do not care if your thing is legal or not. There are a few exceptions that you, you can't go build a new atomic bomb. There's like a specific, uh, specific bar for, for patentability. If you're, if you're building like some sort of weapon of mass destruction, you're, you're not going to get a patent on that. They don't want that kind of information to be public. So there are a few things that are, you can't get a patent because they're illegal. But when it comes to things like drugs, they don't care. You can get a patent. You can, you can get a patent and cover that. You may never ever be able to sell that thing. Um, because of the illegality, but the patent office doesn't care about that. They want to know, is your thing novel? Is it enabled? Can, can a person do your thing when you describe it? And is it non-obvious? Meaning that can I just combine A with B to get your invention C? As long as your invention fits that bill, it doesn't matter if it's illegal or not. You can get that patent. But this is where the trick comes in, especially in the, in the, the challenge comes in for, for cannabis and psychedelics companies is that, all right, so I'm going to go spend a bunch of money and get a patent to treat, say, depression with psilocybin, for example, or something. Then once I have that patent, which will be three years or so after filing the first application, if if all goes well, then uh, are you going to be able to sell that product if it contains something that's illegal? That's a a good question. And the, the answer to that, from my view, comes from chemistry. And that's where derivatives come in. And so Let's say I know psilocybin works well for depression, then why don't I make a slight modification to psilocybin, do some chemistry on it, so that it's essentially the same compound in a lot of ways and has the same effects, but is suddenly a new entity, a new a new chemical. And that thing is not illegal, or at least not yet. And so that's where the IP world kind of thrives, is, is in derivatives, especially when it comes to these kind of drugs, is that not just individual compounds that come from cannabis or, or psychedelics, but new compounds that are inspired by their by their structure and their functionality. And, uh, and that's where the lab work comes in. Well, you know, Mike, I learned something from you every time we talk. This is really, really fascinating. I want to um, synthesize it in the spirit of the conversation into, you know, my understanding is that, so, okay, you have something that occurs in nature. If you can chemically modify this molecule that occurs in nature, and reproduce it with similar effect, it becomes proprietary to you, and that is something that could be potentially patentable. Definitely. Okay. That situation is ideal because new compounds, there's no data on them. There's nobody else. I mean, unless somebody else happens to have made that same derivative in a different lab, there, there's no data on them. So there's not, there's not things that an examiner can grab from, from scientific literature or patent literature and say, somebody else has already done this. No one's even seen this compound. Isn't the data a double-edged sword, right? So there's no data from a patent application standpoint, meaning that that is one less thing that the examiner can point to to reject the patent. However, without the data, though, you can't actually get a, actually show the performance of the patent. Right? Is that, and these are layman's terms. So maybe you should walk us through the sort of steps yeah. of the filing. 
Right. So, so, okay. So with an example, like, like a natural compound that exists and there's anecdotal knowledge or even some research around it showing that it, it does X, Y, or Z health benefit, that kind of stuff exists for known compounds and is published. But if you are working on something in-house, like let's say I'm a, a psychedelics company and I'm making derivatives and no one knows about them outside the company, then I can go and hire a contract research organization to do biological assays, or I can work with a academic lab, say at you know any of universities, and get uh, uh, you know or or do that work in house. I can go hire a biochemist and set up a lab and do those assays and never publish any of that stuff because it's it, it's happening within a company and and the interest is in money and not publications. And so no one would know about the data showing that your drug works for, for this, that, or the other thing. Um, because, because as a company, if you're doing this internally or doing it with the, the help of a CRO, then uh, you can keep all that confidential prior to, to obtaining patents on it. And then once you file, then you can publish all the stuff that you like because you're already ahead in terms of a date on uh, the public disclosure of, of that kind of invention. So... Let's think about there's a lot of founders that listen to this podcast and let's um, focus on cannabis for, for a second. I've, let's say I'm out there, I've got a cannabis startup um, and I'm trying to create a new topical cream for, you know, whatever indication may be. Let's say hair loss, because I know there's a dynamic to hair loss that you explained to me. Yeah. Let's take that rabbit hole just in a second. But let's yeah. say I'm developing a new topical in a cannabis company. How should I approach assessing what my potential is to have intellectual property? How should I think about protecting that intellectual property? What is the process? What are the pros and cons? And kind of what's the smell test of saying, hey, yes, you've got something that has, a, has potential here? Yeah. So, I mean, there's the, the best way to, to answer that question at that early stage would be to do a patent literature search. There are outside organizations that can do this, individuals such as myself that can, that can do this kind of work. But it's, it's to basically use uh, sophisticated searching tools to look at what's out in the patent literature, things that are published applications and issued patents to see if somebody else has already has already done your thing or invented it. And and. Sometimes it's, it's so new that, that you, especially in cannabis and psychedelics, that you're just seeing applications. And so, so you know that somebody out there is trying to get a patent on, on something, but you don't know exactly if they're going to get it yet. And so that sort of patentability or novelty or patent landscape search is the kind of thing that, that you can do to, to see what else is out there. So, but, but I mean, that's one approach. Another approach is to say, look, I have this topical. It works. I know it works. I know how to make it. I know exactly what's in it. If you understand your, your product or, or your invention to that degree, and you don't know, obviously, of anybody else out there that's made it. I mean, usually if you're working in a space, like say examples like a salve or something like that, you probably know of other companies that make those kind of salves. If you're in a situation where you've got something and it, there's something special about, about it compared to what's out there, or as far as you know it's new, sometimes the best option is just to go ahead and file an application towards that and not worry about what else is out there. Because the thing is, especially when, when you're not looking at patent applications with, with experienced eyes, then, then you can basically get scared, scared off because it looks like somebody else is, is going to get a patent on your thing. But it, it's, it really has to, everything has to go through the patent prosecution procedures to, to see what really falls out at the end. And so 
Searching can be informative, but it can also, uh, you know, sort of mess up the, the approach. And if you really think you've got an invention, and as far as you know from, from your experience as expertise in whatever field you're in, then it can be good to go ahead and pursue an application. There are ways to, to jump out of the process, which is expensive, especially if you're doing it right. Along the way, if you get something back from an examiner in a first round of examination that says, hey, here's all the references that I'm going to use against you to say you're not going to get a patent, you can just call it quits then. You might have already spent thirty or 40000 on prosecution, but you know this is why this is an expensive game. And this is why I feel like a lot of cannabis companies in particular don't go down this road because they see these huge dollar amounts and a lack of certainty in the end. Um, but this is just how you got to do it how big pharma does it. Well, so that's so that's interesting. We'll get back to big pharma now too. So we've got to talk about sure. hair loss and big pharma. <laughs> sure. But when you think about these strategies, you know, patents are just one component of a broader sort of intellectual property and and business plan, right? So patents which are different from trademarks, right? But there's trade secrets, right, which are different than patents. Then you've got, you know, the research that's required. Right. So there's a lot of moving parts to this. Talk a little bit about the, the research. I think that's important as well because, you know, there's individual inventors, but you have, when you file a provisional plat- patent, as you've, you know, shared, there's a, a period of time where you have to go through this process. It could be upwards of three years. But at some point, in particular, when you start looking at uh, chemistries, there has to be some scientific rigor that, that proves that this, this, actually works, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, your, your invention has to be described. I mean, this is a, another one of these handles that an examiner can reject you on. There's something called a written description requirement, which means that you have to describe your invention so well that anybody who is of, of ordinary skill in the art in that field could pick up this document alone and know everything that they need to do to reproduce your work or make your thing And so if you're talking about a molecule that's been synthesized in a laboratory, all of the synthetic steps need to be spelled out in detail. The characterization at the end of making that compound that proves that that's what it is needs to be included in in these patents. And so, so yes, so, so you need to, to fully understand and be able to describe your invention to, to someone else in, to any random person in your area of, of expertise. And patent protection will only extend so far. Like you, so you talked about, you know, in trying to invent a new, you know, nuclear fusion, right, or uh, weapon. But you also shared something with me that that was really novel. That there are certain things that the patent office just assumes is impossible, right? And it turns out, yes, hair growth or hair loss, treating hair loss is one of them. Is that right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, some one of the best examples is perpetual motion machine. I mean, every year the patent office receives applications for perpetual motion machines, and it's the type of thing that they just won't waste their time on. And so there's this this idea of incredible utility, and and there was a time, particularly in the '90s, when when people would pharmaceutical companies would develop a drug, and they want to make sure that they cover every possible use of that drug. So let's say I invent a headache medicine. I don't want somebody else to come around and end up finding out that that's a really good allergy medicine and uh, and patenting it for that use. And so. When pharmaceutical companies have a new compound and they have an idea of what it will work on, they obviously pursue protection for that type of use or to treat that indication. 
but also to throw in some other indications. And, and one of the ones that's always been in there is hair loss. And so even if I have a, a new cancer drug, and that's what it's about, there was a time when, when everybody would also throw in, oh, yeah, it could also be used for hair loss, because wouldn't that be a jackpot, you know, if you could sell a really functional uh, hair regrowth compound, you'd make a shitload of money. Um, but uh, the, the patent office got tired of that as well, and so it fell on the list of an incredible utility. And so, so one fun in, fact... In, incredible utility? Incredible utility, yeah. And so, so one fun fact about this is used to be heavier-than-air flight was, uh, was one of these things. And it wasn't until the Wright brothers went to pursue a patent uh, on their plane uh, that, that they turned that around. And, and in that case, the patent office may, actually made them fly the plane uh, in front of the patent office so that they could prove that something that was heavier than air, like a hot air balloon or something like that, could fly. And so it is possible to, to turn around these incredible utility uh, bars to patentability. But, so what uh, we need now is a perpetual cannabis machine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who's out there working on that? Um, <laughs> so, so that's super interesting. And when you think about the hurdles that have to be overcome, um, in your experience, uh, and in particular, looking at it through the pharmaceutical lens and chemistry lens and, you know, biotech, where are the biggest um, opportunities and where are the biggest challenges in the cannabis arena? Yeah. So I think the biggest opportunities are, are in the, the derivative space. Okay. And so, so there, everybody's already out there pursuing extraction procedures and, and patents on extraction procedures and combinations of, of cannabinoids and individual cannabinoids. And that, that's already, that's already done. Uh, and, and so, so the next wave is to actually make new compounds that, that are, I mean, there, there's, there's promise in the minor cannabinoids. So basically digging out some of those, those cannabinoids that have 0.001% of the biomass of, of a cannabis plant. Um, some of those rare things haven't been studied and could have incredible utility, uh, if you will. Um, but, uh, but that's not known yet. And so, so accessing those compounds is difficult. You can't extract those away in any sort of economic fashion. And so you have to go and synthesize them. And so, once you're able to do that and you have the people and ability that can synthesize any cannabinoid, uh, a target cannabinoid, then you can easily make slight modifications and, and go after that. And, and it's, it's for the reason I described earlier is that it's like when you have a new compound, it's not illegal, it's not been patented, it's, it's all new, and you can uh, sort of own uh, that, that kind of uh, uh, compound. And so, so derivatives, I think, are, are key in this space. Um, the other thing would be combinations. Uh, so, so combination therapeutics are where I'm going to take one compound instead of just one molecule to treat a disease. I'm going to take two. You know, a, a perfect example of this is uh, epidiolex. You know, it's just a CBD to THC ratio. It's two compounds. Uh, a lot of drugs that historically things like you know over the counter things, allergy medicines, cancer drugs, they're they're individual compounds. But nowadays, that's not enough to, to, to get intellectual property coverage on those compounds. And so what you might do is combine it with something that's also going to work on whatever indication. So, so, for example, you might have, say, a, a sleep compound combined with melatonin or something like that. Or you have a cancer med that's existing and, and is, a, is a functional known cancer med. And then you have some, say, cannabinoid that, that works on cancer. And so you pursue patent protection for the combination of your cannabinoid and this existing compound. That kind of thing can, can open up doors in terms of what you can cover with the patent. 
Um, but since you, you know, since you mentioned uh, trade secrets, it's important to, I, I want to touch on that real quick because trade secrets are another way to go. Um, unlike, a, unlike a patent, a patent has a term and it's 20 years from filing and it ends up generally being 17 years after issuance. So once you actually have your patent, 17 years, you can run the world on that, in that area. Once that runs out, everyone's going to make generics. And this is what happens with generic drugs and so on. Um, that's when their patent runs out. Now, let's say that, that something is already patented or you don't want to pursue a, a patent for one reason or another. What you can do is, is protect your, your idea as a trade secret. Um, and that has no term, of course, because you can keep it locked up forever. But there are some important distinctions here. If you are interested in keeping your invention as a trade secret and never going the patent route, you can never start down the patent route. So you can't go file an application, get a bunch of rejections from the patent office and say, all right, actually, never mind. I'm going to keep this as a trade secret and not a patent. Once you started the process of that kind of public disclosure, then you can't turn around. No judge will, will help you protect your trade secret after the, knowing that that happened. And so this is the type of strategy consideration that, that you, you want to take. And, and so if you have a new compound, a new drug, I, I highly recommend getting a, a patent to cover that. Now, it's a different story if you have a... a uh, formulation, like even some of these salves and stuff like that, or, or a beverage, for example. I mean, I mean, Coca-Cola, the formula for Coca-Cola is like the best, most valuable trade secret out there. If you have something like that, where, where you're not in the, the technical world necessarily of, of here's a new compound and exactly everything is described, but you have some concoction that people love and works well and you think it's special, then you might be best off never pursuing a patent on that and keeping it as a trade secret. But if you want to protect that down the line, you have to start from day one by making sure that you keep everybody under NDAs, whoever sees that formulation. You have to lock the formula up in a safe somewhere and be able to show you know, that, that you are, are paying for that, that type of protection. Security, security, cybersecurity, and these are the type of things you need to document from day one uh, uh, on, on a trade secret project uh, to, to make sure that, that down the line when somebody... Uh, sues you or you need to sue somebody else, then then you have uh, this, this history of, of how you protected that in-house. And so there's this element of what's available in the public domain, right, that plays into everything. You're talking about protecting trade secrets, and but also for patent applications and for the patent office and for what are the general guidelines for where and when information could either support or negate somebody's pursuit of intellectual property. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are some important timelines here and, and the, the, the most common issue that's encountered in this realm is, is uh, public disclosure. Okay. So let's say I'm a, I'm a cannabis company and I'm working with an academic at say some university universities and academic laboratories are focused on sharing the, the things that they learn with the public. And that's what you're going to do with the patent, but it depends on when you do it. And so, so a lot of people will run up to the issue but where they have a, an academic is excited about results that they have with, with some cannabinoid or psychedelic, and they want to tell the world because that's their job. And they go and publish a, a, a paper on, on this. That, that starts a clock. Once an invention is publicly disclosed, either in a presentation or a publication, any sort of publicly accessible, even a website describing this invention, that starts a one-year clock, at which point you have to file a patent application or you're not going to get, you're not going to get one. And, and the, the, the spirit of that is that the patent office says, Hey, if you've invented something and told the world about it, you need to go ahead and 
pay us and get this prosecution done so that you can get your patent application. And after a year runs out, they view it as that you weren't interested in pursuing a, a patent on that and, and you were barred to, to patentability. And so it's something people want to think about when they're, when they're discussing their exciting new results with, with whatever, um, you know, cannabis or psychedelics compounds they have, um, or working with academics to keep an eye on what public disclosures are happening, um, so that they can be aware of that. Now, once one does file an application, there are some key timelines. Uh, uh, there's a, something called a provisional application, which is sort of like a pre-patent application. Uh, it uh, puts you in line at the patent office for a specific type of invention, um, but uh, but isn't actually examined. And so one can file a provisional application, and then you have a full year before you need to convert that to a real application, a utility or design application that's going to be examined. And so... Um, there are some important timelines in there, but the key takeaway I feel like is, is if you're working with people who are talking about, you know, your, your science, then you need to know when those things are happening and what the audience is so that you can work with your uh, patent prosecution team to uh, make sure you keep control of those dates. And, and there's a global um, component to this too. Different countries have different rules and different, how should U S based companies think about, um, you know, what's happening in other countries. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of people are thinking about patents and they think about the U.S. patent office, which is good. We, we, there's lots of money here. If you have an invention, you want to sell it in America. And so, so that's important. But especially when it comes to things like producing compounds, you know, if you're, if you're talking about making kilograms of something, it's likely that that is actually going to happen if you get to a large enough scale in another country like India or China. I mean, a lot of our pharmaceuticals that you get are uh, almost done are made in the U.S. And so that means that you need to protect the process of making that compound, for example, and that compound in every country where it might be either purchased or made or used. And so that can be daunting. There's hundreds of uh, countries out there and they do have different laws. And so, so there's, there's been a system set up to, to, um, streamline this. And it's by an organization called WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. And there's tons of member countries. Almost all the countries in the world are members, and and those that aren't, you know, are are can be you can pursue patents there as well. But what you would do if you were interested in in, in going big time with your with your patents is would be to file in the country that you live in, which is for most people would be either uh, America or Canada, maybe or some European countries where people are doing this work which is a member country of intellectual property, a world intellectual property organization. And then what they will do is take your application and then enter it into what's called national phase in all the countries that you choose. And so I'm going to file my application in the country I live in, but that patent office will transfer everything to WIPO, which will then give you some time and, 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 uh, and then choices as to say, all right, here are our 200 or so member countries, which would you like to, to, uh, patent your invention in as well. And so basically that one application will branch out into all of the individual countries that you choose to pursue protection in. And then you will be uh, like you are with the patent office having a back and forth with those individual countries. And so, so um, prosecution gets uh, becomes a lot larger scale as it moves on and moves into national phase for, for something that you're pursuing worldwide protection on. So interesting. We could certainly keep going, but I want to end on a more philosophical point here, Mike. Sure. Is soup medicine? <laughs> and I want to go back to a conversation that you and I had 
that I think encapsulates a lot of the dynamic of, of what's happening, right? So what's exciting about these this space and cannabis is, is new inventions, new discoveries, new treatments for and considered viable treatments for a lot of unmet medical needs and they're broad in scope and the, the applications could be transformative. I mean, there's, a, you mentioned Epidiolex, which is, uh, you know, a treatment for uh, adolescent epilepsy. Um, and that's just the first of what should be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of indications that this plant has the ability to, um, to provide uh, some benefits to. And so we were having a conversation about, you know, what occurs in nature versus what is, you know, processed or synthesized, what, you know, is protectable and not. Uh, and I mentioned to you, Mike, that, you know, I, I had, uh, it, you know, an, an ex and her mom used to make me this really good matzo ball soup, this chicken noodle soup, and I wasn't feeling well and I'd have the soup and I'd feel a little bit better. I'm like, but it's soup medicine. Right. And I think this is an interesting way to, to, to think about it, in particular with a recreational market that is really the foundation of the cannabis industry, right, is, is this recreational market where you have something that occurs in nature and you can consume it and it has a certain level of efficacy, right? And everything in pharma originates in nature at some point, right, whether it's a fungus or a bacteria or some chemistry or some molecule. Now, the analogy I like to use is aspirin, right? Aspirin comes from willow bark. You know, can I go chew on willow bark and have the same effects as getting a pill that's been produced in a pharmaceutical quality you know, manufacturing facility? And I think this is a question that I don't know what the answer is necessarily, but it's a conversation I think we need to be having more of in cannabis, which is, is cannabis medicine, right? So we talk about from a regulatory standpoint, there seems to be there's the recreational and then the medicinal, right? Well, a lot of the times the medicinal component is just a consumption access for consumption that is still being used predominantly for intoxication effects, right? So when we think about what occurs in nature and this question of is soup medicine, like where are we on the timeline of cannabis from your perspective, in your opinion, and and how does this layer into delivering healthcare versus access to everyone everywhere? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good good question, important point. And <clears throat> I mean, there's, there's what I view as a problem in, in the established... Western medicine world that, that we live in, which is, is, is a historical, uh, belief and, and, or, or approach, which is that you've got one molecule to treat one indication or disease. That's, that's, that's what all of the regulatory system is set up to, to, to foster. And that, that is partially, uh, sort of orchestrated by the pharmaceutical industry as time has rolled by, but also is just a matter of simplicity. If I want to know that a compound is safe for me to distribute worldwide, then you know that's that's why we have clinical trials. And and when you're testing a, a medicine, and that medicine is made up of more than one compound, you have complexities. You know, it's it's like it's the the the, the issue of like saying I, I have two options for something, and now I have throw in another thing that's also two options. Now I have two times two options, and so the more compounds that you're looking to test uh, on humans in particular, uh, the more sticky the, the analysis of that gets. And, and so just because of the way that the, the, the regulatory system is set up, it, it heavily favors single molecule therapeutics. And now we're just finally entering the stage where things that are made up of two or three compounds can actually become real medicines that you can, you can get access to. Cannabis is the total opposite of that. You've got 100 plus uh, potentially medicinally active compounds in, in, a, in a cannabis plant sample, a cannabis flower. 
And so that's just way too much to sort out. You never know that even one of those trace amounts and, and, and every flower on, on, on even a plant it has different amounts. If you were to, to go ahead and spectroscopically and analyze, you know, just different buds from the same plant, you'd see that there's different amounts. And so first of all, yes, soup is medicine. Food is medicine. Water is medicine. Um, and, and so, but, but that uh, line of thinking is, is not, um, is not a play well with today's regulatory system. And that's something that we need to fix. And I think that, that, that cannabis is the perfect vehicle from which to do that because everyone knows cannabis has tons of benefits. The cat is out of the bag for people who didn't already know it. Um, but, but cannabis is full blown medicine for tons of other stuff. But for me or anyone to be able to distribute that. Um, it's not going to, it's not going to be a cannabis plant. You're not going to ask a, uh, an Alzheimer's patient to, to do bong rips. I mean, maybe some of them will, the cool ones. Um, but, uh, uh, but you know, you, you, it, you, at a certain point you have to be able to give people a pill that's a, a precise dose. Um, and, and that, that requires taking everything apart. You have to take everything apart and know exactly what's in there and exactly how much so, so that you can do reproducible studies and then actually arrive at something that, that, at least the government says it's safe so that you can sell it. Well, Mike, that's a great, great answer and a conversation we're going to have to come back and visit in round two or more. Um, but I think that's a great place to, to, to leave today to think about, you know, precision medicine, the rigor with which the scientific rigor with which is just required in order to truly understand what's, what's happening. And it certainly speaks to me to, a clear definition between developing between recreational, medicinal, medical markets, and and that you know this is a new technology that the pharmaceutical you know model will play well with, and it's an exciting time to be looking at this stuff. It's complicated; it's not for the faint of heart, but luckily there's folks like you out there that that are believers and passionate and have years and years of 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 experience and and skills in order to you know, participate. So Mike, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I regretfully didn't get a plug in for my book yet and you already have a copy of it, so I can't even offer, but, um, <laughs> I, 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 Oh wait, was that a shameless plug right there? Was it? Oh, I mean, the podcast <laughs> is called cannabis capital. Um, if you're out there listening and you haven't got a book yet, um, email me or buy it on Amazon. Um, Mike, real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to um, having more of these conversations. Sure thing. Thanks for having me, Ross. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.